Tom, come on up. No, you don't need it. You can just use it. Okay. You good. You good. Great. All right. Good morning, everybody. I'm glad uh, Ben explained Ebenezer to us all, right? I thought that was uh, one of his crazy uncles in Tennessee at first, but. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's something different. Uh, I also wanted to put a plug in here to all the marrieds uh, this Saturday. Uh, five to six, right here at Aquinas. What? Uh, well, I want to let you know you're uh, you're not going to see me for a while. I'm leaving Thursday, and I won't be back until October 11th. Uh, I've got a little missionary journey, like we're going to read about today. I'll be in uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, and Sweden, and then uh, sometime I hope to find my way back here. Uh, Lori's going to join me later this month, along with Kurt and Heidi Ammons from uh, Milwaukee, and uh, we're, we're over there to help the churches, but also to help with the Ukrainian refugee, uh, their connection with, with those Baltic churches as well. So uh, we're actually going to read about one of these missionary journeys in the Bible today, something that Paul did in... Uh, Uh, Acts chapter 18, if you want to make your way there, we can start. When uh, we do an introduction to the Bible, it's it's kind of a a different type of lesson. It's it's part teaching, but it's also a little bit of preaching and things like that. We'll dive into the book in much detail over the next several weeks. But uh, I think for those of you that are younger Christians that are maybe a little bit overwhelmed with the Bible already, uh, this is also going to serve as a great way to learn the Bible. Uh, I often recommend people uh, that are starting out in the faith to, uh, first of all, focus on the New Testament, the New Covenant, the new contract between God and man. Uh, That's the most important thing for us right now, and that is not at all to diminish the importance and significance of the Old Testament. In fact, without the Old Testament, you can't fully understand the New Testament, but start somewhere. Amen? Then, when you do that, uh, start with a gospel. There's three books that I recommend people to read. One, the gospels. Anyone, you, you choose. It's free choice there. Uh, you've got four to select from, and uh, whatever one uh, you know uh, you you seem to be drawn to, it's going to be just fine. But it's all about the life and the ministry of Jesus. Which, since we're becoming disciples of Him, it's important for us to really understand not only who Jesus was, but what He was like as He interacted with mankind, went from city to city, and engaged different types of groups. These are things that shape our character and our insights about what it means to live as a Christian. Then, the second book is the book of Acts, which we're going to read some of today. That's our church history book, in a a nutshell. It talks about how the church began in Acts chapter 2, and how it started to spread throughout the known world at that time, and uh, went to so many different places. You and I are actually byproducts of the spread of Christianity. It came to America eventually, and uh, we're here, but it started in this part that we're going to read about today. 
And then I often recommend people to read the book of Ephesians because in the book of Ephesians, you have a picture of a relatively healthy church, uh, a somewhat normal church. There's no big issues going on. But in that book, it teaches us what we have in Christ and how we become more mature in Christ and how we fend off some of the things that the world is trying to deceive us with. Amen? And so, in, uh, in the book of Ephesians, you'll find out that uh, there's, there's some things that, when you, when you study these books, I think it's important. Uh, it's the five W's. Like, before you really get to know a book of the Bible, you should ask yourself these five questions. Uh, who was it written to? What, what was written? When was it written? Where was it written? And then why, but I'm going to save that for the very end. Uh, with this, in, in uh, Ephesians 1, uh, verse 1, we know that it was Paul writing this letter, and it calls them the saints, or the saved, in Ephesus. And so, sometimes the, the books, or the letters, uh, have all the evidence you need to know uh, the, uh, some, of, some of these uh, qualifications, or some of these W's that we read about. Uh, and then you can go down and look at some of the other things. I think it's important to note the when uh, was this, uh, <clears throat> around 62 AD. This church was now about 10 years old. And so if you're a, around a 10-year-old Christian, uh, this would be really important for you because some of the things they're going through are the same things that 10-year-old Christians go through. Uh, there's lots of things that are kind of characteristic of what churches go through. We're going to read some of that today, but uh, it's also to under, important to understand not only how this affects you, but also the church that you're a part of. Uh, so the bottom line of all of this is if you don't know the background of a person, it's hard to get to know that person, correct? Like the longer Lori and I are here and a part of the fellowship, which may be until we die or Jesus returns. We don't know which. Uh, and you should have the same attitude. Because if you don't have that attitude, then you don't give your heart to the people that you're with. Amen? So, Pat, until we kick off, you're stuck. we're stuck with each other. All right? Okay, good. Unless Jesus comes back or he tells us to go someplace else. Is that right? But while we're here, we're, we're stuck. Okay, good. Pat's not a bad person to be stuck with. <laughs> uh, and so uh, let's, uh, let's look in Acts chapter 18 as we get started. Beginning in verse 18, it says, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers, sailed to, uh, for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had cut his hair off at Centria because of a vow he had, a take, had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. This is the first mention of the city of Ephesus that we have in the New Testament. Uh, I think it's quite possible that when the great persecution broke out in Acts chapter 8, and all the disciples that were in Jerusalem scattered, they went back to the places where they came from, I think it's quite possible that disciples 
wandered up into some of these areas. So it would be wrong to say that Christianity had not yet come, but organized Christianity and uh, churches had not yet been established in many of these areas. I think the timing of this is interesting. Ben talked about a monumental event that happened in Rome in 49 AD when Claudius kicked out all of the Jews. That shaped the church in Rome, but it also shaped the other churches. And it's interesting because just before what we read in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, we read about that very event. So Ben didn't make it up. It's actually in the Bible. Amen? Some of you thought, maybe he, did he make that up? No, it's really there. Uh, And let's just read it. After this, Paul left Athens, went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, uh, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And so there you have it. God uses events in history to kind of shape how his kingdom grows and develops and spread. Uh, We know that to be true from the the story in Acts chapter 8. I believe that with the pandemic that came, this has affected how our churches operate and even how we worship. There are positive things from that, but then there's also some negative things. It's very clear to me, because I've had firsthand knowledge of it, and I've talked with and seen disciples from the Ukraine that have now migrated to many cities in Europe and uh, are now establishing their residency, many of them in the countries that I'm going to be visiting and throughout Europe. God is shaping and changing how churches work and operate as a result of historical events. Amen? So we read on a little bit farther. Verse 23, after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia uh, and Phrygia, uh, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained the way of God to him more adequately. Some translations have more accurately. And so we have this little timeline that starts to develop now where uh, uh, we're, we're before the book of Ephesians was actually written, This is kind of the ground floor of things that start to develop. A lot happens in Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20. Then we have the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians around 62 AD. We also have some other evidence in the Bible of what was going on in Ephesus from 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, some of the things that now uh, Timothy, the evangelist of the church, was having to deal with. And then we read about a very sad state of affairs much later in the first century in Revelation. 
Some of these dates I have asterisks by because not all scholars agree on the exact dating of letters and events and times. Some we know because they're corroborated not only within the Bible, but also with historical records that are not biblical, and uh, we can have a pretty, uh, pretty certain idea of when some of these dates hit. So keep that in mind. Uh, if you have read something that says something other than these dates, it doesn't mean you're right and I'm wrong. It doesn't mean that I'm right and you're wrong. It just means people have some different opinions of all of that. And it seems like that's what Wednesday nights are going to be all about. Amen? You can still like each other. I'm, I'm even open to the idea that if you're an Ohio State Buckeye fan, there, there's like a little window of opportunity that we could still enjoy fellowship with each other. But you'd have to be real careful what kind of clothing you put on. You know what I'm saying? All right. Acts chapter 19, let's look in verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Uh, so Paul, uh, they, uh, where am I, verse, <laughs> then, oh, then he, then he says, verse 3, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This all happened just like Apollos. Some people that knew a lot about Jesus but didn't have it all accurate in how to become a Christian, these two things happened in the city of Ephesus. As we go around and we share our faith and we try to study the Bible with people, we're going to find people just like that. In fact, there's a good chance that many of you are people just like that. That you love God, you love Jesus, you know a lot about Jesus, you know about what it means to be a disciple, but perhaps somewhere along the way in the teaching that you received about how to have your sins forgiven, when they're forgiven, and when a person goes from lost to being saved, Maybe some of those things are a little bit different. And these two examples of Apollos and these disciples that Paul ran across are great for us to study out personally. Uh, I don't want to point the finger at anybody and I don't want to accuse anybody of not being saved, but I would ask all of us to take a look at what the scriptures teach, compare it to what we believe, and if there is a discrepancy to have the personal integrity, love for God, and actually love yourself enough to admit the truth so that you can get right with God. Lori and I, over the last 40 years, have studied with a lot of people that we felt like were, in some cases, more disciples than the disciples in our church. And it's a dilemma, isn't it? Like, Man, my heart goes out to them. I respect how they live. I respect their thinking. They study their Bible more. They pray more. They, they're, they're more generous. They serve and all these things, sometimes more than people that we've worshipped with for a good long time. And uh, we should all be convicted by that. But at the same time, there is a specific moment in time 
when a person goes from lost to being saved. And in both these cases, Priscilla and Aquila and Paul love these individuals enough not to just uh, give them the benefit of the doubt, but to ask some serious questions about their salvation. Some of you that have been visiting for a while, you know a little bit about what this church is all about. You walk in and you've been here and you've been coming and going and uh, you, you know what the scriptures teach. In some of these cases, maybe there's a conversation that needs to be had or has been had that you haven't responded to yet, but it really does revolve around this very point, just like in Ephesus, did you become a Christian the way the Bible talks about? I was uh, baptized as a baby. I don't remember it. I'm pretty sure I didn't like it, though. (laughs) Then, kind of in between high school and a little bit after that, I read a book that told me to pray Jesus into my heart, and I did that. And that stuck for about 24 hours, and then I was kind of back doing to whatever I did before, which... Let's just say, we don't want to talk about all of that right now. And then, in 1982, Lori and I were already married. We stumbled across this sister down in Tampa, Florida. She reached out to us, and she, with the help of some other people, started to open up the Bible with us. And we realized that even though we believed we were Christians, we could see clearly in the Bible that our approach to salvation was very different than what the Bible actually teaches. And so then we were in this situation that perhaps some of you are in right now. Will I follow God and His Word? Or will I diligently hold on to the things that I was taught at a much younger age? Some of these things have come through family members and friends and churches that you're family as a whole has been a part of for generations, you've got to be willing to let go of that and realize that there is but one way to be saved. We're not the only ones saved, not even in the city of Grand Rapids. There's lots of people that are saved that aren't at this fellowship this morning. But there is one way to be saved, and that's part of what was established early on in the history of Ephesus. Then in Acts chapter 20, some time goes by, Paul leaves, he comes back uh, to a, a little place called Miletus, and he has a final conversation, or what he thought would likely be the final conversation he has with the eldership that had uh, been grown up in Ephesus. And towards the end of this interaction of Acts chapter 20, I want to pick up on a couple things here. He says in verse 22, And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. be quite a lifestyle to live, wouldn't it? However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. 
Therefore I declare to you today I'm innocent of the blood of all men. For I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in and not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Paul taught a lot more than the gospel. It's a great starting point. In fact, it is the starting point for everybody in this world. But there's so much more to learn other than just the gospel itself. There's things that are deeper doctrinal issues that we need to learn and study. There are things about character and how to view the world that we live in that we need to learn and study. And evidently, Paul spent a fair amount of time teaching these things in addition to the gospel. One of his warnings, and we can kind of piece together by history that it hadn't happened yet, but he was preparing them for a time when there was going to be division in the church. When people would actually come into the church and change the scriptures around, distort them, if you will, in order to draw away disciples after them. This has happened in nearly every church that I've ever been a part of. Sometimes in big ways, most of the time it starts with a brother, a sister, a couple with some little axe to grind or some weird little interpretation of an obscure passage that you don't want to build a whole theology around, but they're trying to do it. And all of a sudden they pass that on to this person and that person. There's a little buzz that starts to develop. And the next thing you know, the whole fellowship is turned into turmoil because of exactly what Paul is talking about right here. As you go through your life as a Christian, there's always going to be things that come up that make you question. There's going to be a lot of things that you hear. And it's what you do in those moments of confusion where you will either help build up the church or you could actually be a party in destroying the church. I've been a part of the Grand Rapids Church off and on, really, since it began uh, out of Detroit. I don't even remember what year that was. Long time ago. Early 90s, something like that. Don't leave me hanging. Somebody, 99? All right, so almost, yeah, a long time. And uh, I've known a lot of great things that have happened in the Grand Rapids Church. And I've known some things that have been very destructive that have happened in the Grand Rapids Church. Lori and I, when we led the Detroit Church a number of years ago, we would help Uman and Pam with some challenging things that would come up here from time to time. Uh, before Uman and Pam were here, uh, we helped out the leadership group that was in place from Chicago and Milwaukee. So... Some of you that have been around a while, you know some of the history of the church, and it is because of this 
very phenomenon right here. We've got to be so overprotective of our unity that when we have conflict within us and issues arise, we got to talk about them, but we have to talk about them with the right person. Amen? If I grab another weak Christian or a brand new Christian and start vomiting all my issues on them, all I've done is laid the groundwork to destroy their faith. Some of you are not courageous enough and don't have the integrity enough to talk to the person that you have an issue with. Instead, you'll talk about them with everybody else. And so we all have to be on our guard uh, about this very thing. Amen? You can study more about that. The Bible's filled with examples. So then the church is established now. It's up and running. It has mature leadership. People are getting baptized. There's a great vibe going on in the church. Uh, Some historians believe that Ephesus might have been the second largest city in the world at that time with 250,000 residents. We know it was a thriving city was a seaport town and uh, a great cultural uh, uh, hotbed for uh, those that lived in, under the, the Roman Empire at that time. There were a lot of trade routes that went from Ephesus out to other places. And later on, God used this, the, the, the establishment of the church, to actually be a vehicle for evangelism into the region of Galatia, Phrygia, and some of those places. And so this was a strategic place. Now, picture this. You've got a lot of people that are there. They grew up there in Ephesus. And then you've got a lot of people that move in from other places. I would say Grand Rapids is not too dissimilar from that. How many of you are local Grand Rapidians? I'm raising my hand because I grew up here. Northeast side, Plainfield, Four Mile. Back in those days, we didn't go downtown. There was nothing cool downtown. And now all of a sudden, downtown's cool. Who would have thought? It just took me leaving for 40 years, I guess. So that means most of you, the vast majority of you, are transplants from other places. How many of you were baptized in the Grand Rapids Church? You were baptized into Jesus, but was the Grand Rapids Church that taught you how to become a Christian, all right? A few. Many of you were converted in other places, other cities, other parts of the country. A couple foreigners, too. People, you got Chantel, she's, a, she's from Canada up there, you know, over there. Here's a, here's, a, here's a trivia question. Where's the only place in the United States you have to travel south to get to Canada? Detroit. It's Detroit. you got to go south. Look it up on a map. We don't have time to get into all that stuff. All I'm saying is, even in our church, where we have so much in common, we can go from one city to another. If you were to travel with me on this Baltic trip, you would feel like, hey, I don't understand what they're saying, and I certainly don't get what they're eating, but I feel like this is my church. You would feel that. 
Uh, Steve and Katrina are recently coming here, but they were converted down in Chattanooga, Tennessee, down there, down south. And uh, they came for the first time last Sunday, and they felt like, ah, this feels like the church. And they didn't know anybody here walking in. So there's a lot of that stuff that goes on that's good. But let's face it, we also bring a few bags of baggage along with us based on our experiences in other churches. If the church you came from had a lot of internal issues and leadership struggles, you may perceive that or bring that baggage with you and project that on what's going here. And that just isn't the case. You might have come from a large church where they have unlimited resources, so it seems, to a small church. And, uh, you know, and you realize that those large churches, they pillage the small churches. They take our evangelists. Okay, I know I'm just, that that was uh, therapeutic for me to get that out. Thank you. Thank you. But you shouldn't expect the Grand Rapids Church to function like a 3,000-member church in Chicago. It's just different. They're different things. But we can all agree on what it takes. And so when you read through the book of 1 and 2 Timothy, you find in this letter a lot of indications now what was going on probably because of many of the same things that Ben talked about on Wednesday night. Now there's this mix of Jew and Gentile, the battle for control, what influence and what is sin and so many other things along those lines. Just let's look at a few of these. 1 Timothy chapter 1 in verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, Paul talking to Timothy, that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work. And it goes on, chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. And then into 2 Timothy, many of the same types of things start to develop. And so we see a picture of a church before all this stuff happened, an amazing beginning, people becoming Christians, the church growing, elders being appointed, and it becoming kind of a hotbed for regional evangelism. Then we have the letter of Ephesians that Paul wrote after the church was up and running, And then we have a little glimpse later on, not long after that, in 1 and 2 Timothy of some of the internal issues that were going on. But if we would look at Ephesians as we study through this the next several weeks as a way to think about how we should function as a church, then we can avoid a lot of the pitfalls 
that they fell into. We can avoid the division. We can avoid the personal spiritual drift. We can avoid the, uh, the swaying of opinions from outsiders and even at times from people within. And so as I wrap this up, I want us just to look at two passages in the book of Ephesians. I'm trying to finish before the monsoons hit around noon. As I've read through the book of Ephesians, there seems to be a clear delineation between the first part of the book and the second part of the book. The first three chapters, let me turn this for you here, uh, is basically encouragement. There's two ways to look at encouragement. Uh, I can say, Jeff, you're a great guy. It was so good having lunch with you the other day. And I'm glad that you uh, wiped your mouth when you had that uh, salad dressing coming down your, your corner. I'm just making that up. It's, it's encouragement from the standpoint of, I recognize what you've done. I'm commending you for your faith and things like that. But then also encouragement comes from, hey, I want to encourage you to read your Bible. To not let your feelings control you. This is also encouragement that we read about throughout the scriptures. And so this first part of the book, chapters 1 through 3, basically is this encouragement that we read about. In verse 1 it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the, uh, the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons. Uh, verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 11, In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined. Verse 13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Throughout these first three chapters, you hear a lot of encouragement like this. It's important for us to remember what we have. You didn't just get baptized in a plastic tub from uh, tractor supply. I don't know how many of you did that, but uh, some of you did, I know, because that's... If you don't have a plastic tub, it's got to be gray. It's called a Rubbermaid stock feeder. And uh, there was a time that no other water would have been adequate. It, it had to be out of a Rubbermaid stock feeder, okay? I got a smile out of the girls over here. Thank you. That was my goal, to get you guys to smile. All right. Uh, <clears throat> I forgot what I was saying now, but uh, <laughs> stock feeder. Uh, you're part of the kingdom of God. You didn't get baptized into the Grand Rapids Church of Christ. You got baptized into Christ Himself. You're not a member of the Grand Rapids Church of Christ. You're actually a citizen of heaven. That's only part of what God did for you and me when we made that good confession that Jesus is Lord 
and then went down into the water, was baptized, came back up, our sin was gone, the Holy Spirit was placed within us by the Lord Himself. We have all of this, and we have each other, a fellowship of people that have done the exact same thing. And so one, the first part of the book, is encouragement. As we go through those first three chapters of Ephesians, you're going to be encouraged. And you'll be nudged a little bit and pushed a little bit to remember what you have. Don't give up on it. Hold on to it tighter. In fact, even grow deeper in these things that Paul highlights. Amen? And then in chapter 4, there seems to be a pivot in Paul's letter where he's now admonishing people to do certain things, which is chapters 4, 5, and 6. And let's read where this pivot happens in verse 1. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But in a nutshell, he just simply says, live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. We know this to be true because You've got to repent before you're baptized. That's what the Bible teaches, right? But repentance isn't only to be baptized and to get into Christ. Repentance is something, it's it's a lifestyle that we enter into. That when things come up in our lives, we repent in our thinking, in our actions, in our speech, in our marriages, in our parenting, things like this. And so Paul just simply says, a simple header that captures so many things, live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Amen? There's a little bit of background to the book of Ephesians. There's certainly a whole lot more, but uh, for the sake of our time this morning, I think that gives you kind of a, a pretty good picture of what it's all about. I want to close with this thought. Sometimes... Doesn't your life feel like that? I've talked with a couple of you this morning already, and I know that in your head, this is what's going on. My life is chaotic. It seems to be unraveling. There's stuff going on that I have absolutely no control over. And I would say two things about when your life feels like that. Sometimes it's circumstances. Life has never been fair, and if you're thinking that sometime after you become a Christian that life is now going to be fair, you're going to be so sad. And you're going to want Jesus to come like tomorrow or even this afternoon. Because life is never going to be fair. The world is going to beat us up and torture us. You're going to have crummy bosses and crummy professors You're going to have people that cheat you and swindle you and tell you lies. Don't come through when they say they're going to come through. All of this stuff is going to happen, and it's totally out of your control. But being a Christian, we always have Jesus, the Holy Spirit, 
to make sense out of, a, out of this senseless world that we live in. But I would also like to point out that sometimes when your life looks like this, it's actually self-induced. You've created it yourself by poor decisions, letting your emotions get the best of you, leaving messes behind you like unresolved relationships and things like that, bombing out on an exam when you know you didn't study before you went into it. That, that's not the world, that's you. And sometimes our messes are because of that. And so I would just encourage us to think about the why. The why of Ephesians are these two things. Paul wanted these disciples, 10-year-old disciples, to remember how good they have it as a Christian and to never look back. And then he wanted them to make sure that they were honing in on the life that God had called them to live so that they could enjoy life to the full while they're here on this earth, but also to have a life that attracts others to become Christians as well. And so there we have it, the book of Ephesians, the introduction of it, and we'll uh, dive into it much deeper later on. Amen? Are we taking communion now? or What are we doing here, Ben? All right. Ben's going to pray.